The Hauntings at Frother, Part 2 of 3 The Story of Thorir, Thorgrima and Thorod By the time the corpse-bearers returned from their long journey to Skalaholt with Thorgunna's coffin, winter had come and it was nearly yuletide. Fresh snow lay all around, crunching underfoot as they made their weary way back finally into the homestead. The day lasted only a few hours just after noon, and the eerie green lights danced across the night sky whenever the snow clouds cleared. The settlement at Frother was still small. At harvest time, when Thugunna died, there were thirty serving folk living there, as well as Thorod and his family, and Thoria Woodenleg, and Thorgrima Witchface. The homestead was made up of a collection of small wooden buildings with turf roofs, partly dug into the ground to keep them as warm as possible. The little church had no priest, nor yet any burials, as Christ's rule had only just become law. Those who had died earlier were buried in small mounds outside the boundary wall. There was one great fire hall, around which, throughout the winter, the whole settlement would gather in the evenings to share its warmth and light. In the summer they sometimes spread out more, and used a second, slightly smaller hall nearer to the food supplies, or sat outside in the midnight sunshine, sleeping under the stars. It was a cold year, and everyone was glad of the fires and the company that sitting around them brought. The strange green light of the winter shone through the smoke holes in the roof. Most of the villagers were talking and laughing, and looking forward to the Yule feast in a few weeks' time. But Bjorn the shepherd seemed quiet and withdrawn. He had seated himself a little apart from everyone else, and seemed to be muttering incoherently into the fire. He was a surly sort anyway, but Thorre Woodenleg felt he ought to check on the man. "'Hey, Bjorn, how is the Yuletide ale coming along?' he said, by way of a conversation starter. But Bjorn just grunted and looked up at the sky through the smoke hole. "'I don't like this light,' he said. Deaths are coming. Oh, um, oh, said Thorir, and ran out of things to say. That may be true, said Thorir's wife, Thorgrima Witchface, when he reported back to her. There's something not right here. Can't you feel it? Thorir shook his head, but he watched in some concern as the shepherd got up and left without a word, going straight to his bed near the animals. The next morning... Thorir went to check on the shepherd first thing. He was not entirely surprised to find the man stone-cold dead. "'He must have died some time in the night,' said Thorgrima, looking over his shoulder. "'But why? What has killed him?' Thorir beckoned Thorod over to let him know what had happened. "'I don't know,' said Thorgrima. "'I cannot tell.' There is not a mark on him, though I thought perhaps I saw him cough and shiver like Thorgunna did before he went to bed last night. I don't like it. Nor do I, said Thorod, joining them, his wife Thurid by his side, and his young son Kirtan peeking over his shoulder. We must bury him as quickly as possible. The priests in Skalaholt are burying the bodies around the church. They say it is important, so that the whole Christian community can rise again together on the last day. The dead are only asleep in Christ, they say, and must be kept within the boundary wall. Thorgrima made a face as if to object, but Thorir quickly spoke over her. Then that is what we'll do, he said. We shall put a pole in the grave to mark the spot, 
and as soon as we can get a priest to say the blessing, we'll take the pole out. Good idea, but it may be a while, said Thorod. The winter is coming in hard. I think it will be some time before a priest can get here. My brother Snorri will come as soon as he can, said Thurid. He does not fear cold, in fact, I think he quite likes it. Perhaps we should send for him now. No, not yet, said Thorod. You were not with us on the journey back from Skalaholt. The ground is nothing but ice, the winds are biting and the cold can kill. This is not the time to drag your brother here on foot through the dark. We will bury this man as best we can and wait for the spring. A couple of nights went by and all seemed to be well. Until, that is, Thorir drank too much ale one evening and he left the fires late at night in the dark to answer a call of nature. Thorir was moving as quickly as possible before his fingers, toes and other body parts froze and he had his head down against the sharp wind. He came to the double door to the great hall and reached out without looking to push it open and his hand came up against not the wood of the doors but cold flesh. Who is that? he grumbled. Let me in and I'll let you out. Silence. But when he reached out again, whoever it was, was still there. Oi, move! cried Thorir and looked up and saw Bjorn the shepherd standing tall in front of him blocking the double doorway to the hall. Thorir had not thought he could be any colder, but the chill that ran through him was more than just the effect of the temperature. He tried to duck around the silent figure, but Bjorn moved suddenly and blocked his way. Thorir looked up at the dark, silent face in a panic. He turned away, thinking he would go to the smaller fire hall by the food storage units and there light a new fire while he worked out what to do. As he turned, he heard a shuffling noise behind him as if of a large man moving. He decided to give up on any show of bravery and run as fast as he could. But when he tried, his wooden leg caught in the snow and he fell forward. Scrambling to his feet, Thoris started to hobble as quickly as he dared towards the smaller hall. But when he had got only a few steps, he felt a hand land heavily on his shoulder. Thorir spun around and tried to fight the silent figure of Bjorn, flailing his arms wildly at the hollow face. But he could not get his balance in the snow on his wooden leg, and all his attempted punches went wide. Bjorn grabbed him roughly by both arms and flung him back against the doors to the great hall. Thorir did not waste the opportunity. He pushed the door open with his back and rolled inside, screaming at everyone within the hall to shut and hold the doors behind him. Thorgrima was first to her husband's side, and young Kirtan ran to the double doorway to hold it shut, while the others hung back, wondering what on earth was going on. Quick! Thorgrima cried. Take him to the fire! Look at him! Thoria was covered in snow, and his skin looked coal blue underneath it. They laid him by the fire and changed his wet clothes, but he continued to shake with the cold and looked no better. Thorgrima took him to bed and nursed him as best she could but none of her remedies had any effect. All night she held him, desperately trying to share her own body warmth with him, wrapping him in all the warmest furs that they had, but it did no good. By morning, like Bjorn before him, Thoria was dead. Thorir Woodenleg was buried beside Bjorn the Shepherd in the area they had marked out for burials by the small church building. 
Thurid spent as much time as she could with Thorgrima over the next few days, for the widow was inconsolable. Thorod, though sad, was more concerned with the fish stocks. As everyone was gathering around the fire in the great hall for the evening, he heard a strange sound coming from the store where the stockfish were kept. When he checked, there seemed to be nothing there, but there were also considerably less fish than he was expecting. Puzzled and not a little panicked, Thorod was making his way across the snow back towards the great hall when he saw two people standing a little way off in the shadows thrown by his torchlight. Raising the torch to find out who could be wandering around in the cold and the dark, the two figures turned towards him and he recognised the faces of Bjorn and Thorir. Thorod nearly dropped his torch, but he kept his wits about him. Clutching the flame in his shaking hand, he shifted sideways through the snow in the direction of the doorway to the great fire hall, never turning his back on the pair, but keeping his eyes on them at all times until he could shove open the doors with his shoulder and duck inside. When he told everyone else what he had seen, Thorgrima rushed out to try to find her husband, but he had disappeared again. The next morning she had more luck, as the late morning brought the slow sunrise, she saw both figures standing on the edge of the settlement, near the boundary wall. She ran over to greet them, but slipped and fell in the snow. When she got up again, they had disappeared. Thogrima herself, however, had gone cold and blue, just like Thorir before her, and that night, sleeping in their shared bed in a dark and distant part of the hall, she died. Thorgrima was buried next to her husband as quickly as possible. When Thorod went out to check on the fish stocks during the late noon dawn the next day, he glanced over towards the three poles by the church and saw three figures standing below them, looking almost as if they were in conversation. Bjorn, Thorir, whose wooden leg was clearly visible, and Thorgrima, even more deserving of her nickname of Witchface than she had been while alive. Thorod had hoped that perhaps, with Thorgrima's passing, their troubles would be over. But as the Yule feast approached, more people started to get sick and die. Five of his housecarls passed away within a week. He kept Kirtan as close as possible, and lay at night with his arms wrapped around Thurid, but was completely at a loss to solve either problem. He could not work out why the stockfish were disappearing as they still were, or how to stop his people from dying. I will sleep in the storeroom with the fish, father, suggested Kirtan, and catch whoever is doing this and beat them for it. He proudly waved around his father's club in his skinny arms. No, cried Thorod. Then no, he said more calmly, working out how to appeal to the teenager to be more cautious. No, you must stay with your mother and look after her. The death of Thorgrima hit her hard. Not even her lovely silk sheet can bring her comfort just now. You must watch over her and look out for any sign of illness. And you must take action quickly if you need to. Burn those bedsheets if she becomes even the slightest bit sick. I must go fishing and replenish our stock. At this time of year, said Kirtan, incredulous. Father, that is madness. We will just have to make do with what we have until the spring. Thorod shook his head. It is already too late for that, he said sadly. Even if we cut our Yule feast back to almost nothing, even if half a dozen more women and men die from this sickness, we won't survive until the spring without more fish. I have to take the chance. But don't worry. 
I have always been a blessed man at sea. And so Thorod took with him five men and a boy to watch for their return, and they went out fishing at Ness. Thurid and Kirtan watched them leave, and Thurid grabbed Kirtan's hand and squeezed it tightly, and he let her. Days passed, and another of Thorod's housecarls died of the sickness. Thurid and the other women took care of the burial, using the few hours of daylight to dig another plot in the swiftly filling graveyard. The poles marking each grave swayed in the wind. Kirtan watched over them, helping with the digging but mostly keeping guard, his father's big club in his hand. Thurid's hands became calloused, and she thought with a little regret of how she was likely to rip and tear her beautiful silk bedsheet when she was finally able to lie down that night. As they worked and the shadows lengthened, Thurid happened to glance up. Standing around the edge of the churchyard, silently watching, were Bjorn, Thorith, or Grima, and the other five dead housecarls. She worked faster, and when the grave was ready, Kirtan led the women in a quick prayer for the dead before all heaped the earth back over the dead man, shoved a pole into the grave, and fled back to the great fire hall to light the evening fire. The sun was sitting on the horizon and the shadows growing long when the boy who had gone with Thorod returned. Thyrid saw him approach as she went to light the torches, coming down the path from Ness. He was alone, and she knew something was wrong. As he got closer, she saw that he was weeping, and now she wept herself, because she knew what he would say. Kirtan, she called, and her son came rushing over to her. Thyrid said nothing but pointed with a shaking hand at the boy, who was now nearly at the homestead. Kirtan saw the tears in her eyes and called out to the boy, Ho! What news? But he knew the news himself already, even before the boy told it. Thurid and Kirtan wrapped the shaking boy in a cloak and took him with them to the great fire hall. Kirtan thumped his father's club against a cooking pan to get folks' attention. News from the Ness, he cried out, and all went silent. My father, and all the men who went with him, have been lost at sea. Their catch was washed up to shore with the wreckage, and here he held up the fish the boy had brought back with him. But they are dead. There were now eighteen serving folk sitting around the fire, many of them women, plus some children. Silence fell, and all looked to each other, calculating. Without Thorod and his men, did they now have enough fish to last the winter? Would they survive? Who would lead them in his place? What would they do if the sickness continued to sweep through their numbers? We will hold an Arvala for my father and his men, announced Kirtan. We will use the ale put aside for the Yule feast. There was a murmur of voices, for no funeral feast had been held for those who had died of the sickness, only hasty burials with Christian prayers. But these prayers had been for naught so far, and Thorod had been their chief. One of the housecarls peeked out through the double doors to where the figures of Thorir and Thorgrima and the other dead folk stood once again in the shadows around the turf roofs of the settlement. "'I have heard it said,' he said, "'that if drowned men come to drink their own Arvala ale, "'all present will have the good favour of Ran, the goddess of the sea.' 
cried another. The goddess of the sea? What heathen talk is this? Hush yourself, broke in one of the women. You proponents of Christ's law have been peddling your new religion for barely a year or two, and what good has it done us? Perhaps you should sit back and listen to we who know the old ways and the truth of things. At that, an argument broke out and became heated between those who placed their faith in the new religion and those who preferred the old. Kirtan hesitated. He knew his uncle, Snorri the priest, would expect him to uphold the way of the Lord, but he could see himself clearly outnumbered for those hoping for the good favour of Ran. They had certainly been severely lacking the good favour of any god lately. Silence, he called out. We will hold the Arvala tomorrow for three nights, and we will see. It was a tense gathering as everyone came together around the fire for the Arvala the following night. The silent figures of Bjorn and Thorir and Thorgrima and the others watched them as the group made their way into the great fire hall. Everyone in the company cast furtive looks toward one another, but no one spoke as Kirtan poured out the funeral ale. When the time came to raise their cups to the dead, all turned to face the door. They raised their drinks, took a breath to dedicate them to the dead, and then Thorod pushed open the double doors and strode into the great hall. His skin was a bluish colour and bloated looking, and he was soaking wet. Water dripped off his clothes and hair and fell to the floor as he moved towards the fire. Behind him, his five fellow fishermen followed, all wet and dripping too. Praise be to Ran, cried the housecarls. The great goddess has blessed us. Welcome, friends, and drink. Several tried to give their ale cups to the dead men, but Thorod and his men did not respond. They simply went over to the fire, sat down, and started wringing out their wet clothes and holding their dead hands out to feel its warmth. The followers of Ran were unworried. They sat down beside their late companions and drank for them and celebrated. I don't like this, said Thurid quietly to Kirtan. There is none of your father's warmth in this thing. He hasn't even looked at us. And I put no faith in the sea or its goddess, she added bitterly. I don't like it either, said Kirtan. I feel like I can hear Uncle Snorri in my head and what he would say about all this. He sighed. If the men are right, he said. The fishermen and father with them will stop coming when the Arvala is done. So I think we must wait and see what happens. What about the others? asked Thurid, gesturing towards the doorway, meaning Thorir and Bjorn and their company. Kirtan could only shrug his shoulders in despair and return to the fire. He took some ale and sat by Thorod, but whatever was left of his father, it would not look at him nor touch him and he was not sure he wanted to touch it. Thurid retired early to her bed and pulled her silk sheet over herself. Just as she had feared, she snagged it on her rough hands, and she prayed to the god of the Christians that there would be no more deaths among them, though in her heart, as she settled into her linen-lined bed, she knew that the sickness was not yet gone. To be continued. Hi everybody, welcome back to Creepy Classics. This is the podcast retelling and discussing ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories. 
The podcast is normally monthly. Episodes go out uh, towards the end of the month, once a month. But this is an extra episode. It's part of a three-part plague special. So if you are listening to this in the far future, it is currently May 2020. And we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, hopefully not the middle. Hopefully somewhere later than the middle, but anyway. Um, So uh, I thought I would look into uh, a story with a theme of um, disease and infection. This comes from the medieval Icelandic saga Erbigia saga, but a haunting that has this infectious epidemic quality to it. So my specialism is... uh, ancient Rome. So medieval Iceland uh, is not my specialism. Uh, I've been thoroughly researching this for the last few weeks. Um, Please forgive my pronunciation. Um, I do my best. I've anglicised most of the names um, in an attempt to just not mangle the Icelandic pronunciation. Um, On the plus side, everybody has the same accent today, unlike part one, because they all come from the same settlement. So I haven't messed around with the accents this time. I've made a few changes to the story. They're fairly minimal. Most of it is more or less um, an extended version of what's in the saga. Uh, The action scene between Thorin and the dead shepherd I've slightly extended by just taking his wooden leg into account. Um, He's called Thorir wooden leg throughout the saga, but the, the leg doesn't really come up in any meaningful way in the section that I'm looking at. Uh, So I just sort of had that play into the confrontation between him and the shepherd. The shepherd is not named uh, in the saga. I named him after Bjorn from The Hobbit, really. Um, And just because Bjorn is a well-known Scandinavian name. I did cut a section on uh, an omen called the Moon of Weird, which is a strange half-moon that shines on the walls of the, the Great Hall, Partly because there are just so many weird omens. Uh, I also kept the strange activity in the fish storage fairly minimal for the moment. Um, There's just so much going on in this story and I wanted to focus, especially in this section, this middle section, I wanted to focus primarily on the appearances of the ghosts or revenants. Uh, So I cut the moon of weird, but I did add the northern lights, which aren't in the saga, um, to sort of get across the same... uh, as what the the section on the the Moon of Weird did. Um, Yuletide is Advent, Christmas and Epiphany. So this is from the very end of November or beginning of December through to the 6th of January. So the story at this point is taking place around late November, early December. And that's at the darkest time of year um, in Iceland, as in the rest of Northern Europe. So daylight hours in Iceland on the shortest day of the year, which is the 21st of December, are about noon till 4pm. So I've mentioned that quite a few times. Um, Thorgrima is called Thorgrima Witchface in the saga. Uh, It's not completely clear whether that means she is a witch or she's just ugly and looks like one Um, but other scholars have assumed that she is actually a witch so I've implied that she is sort of a witch Um, I've made vague references to her having remedies and things like that I haven't gone into it in any real detail I have moved a couple of things around in the plot as well so there is an incident which uh, I am saving for part three so I won't describe it but there is a a section an incident that I haven't included yet that is coming up in part three 
And I've moved Thorgrima's death up. Thorgrima dies a bit later in the saga, but I wanted to put her death next to her husband's. So I fiddled around with the chronology of events a little bit. And I also gave Thorgrima uh, one of Grima Wormtongue's lines from Lord of the Rings purely as an in-joke to satisfy myself. The opportunity was there and I just couldn't resist it. Now, the saga is quite specific about the numbers of people affected in this story. And it took me a few goes at adding up the numbers to work out exactly who it was and wasn't referring to. So it's very specific about there being 30 serving folk at harvest time. Um, There is a later reference to six men, which, as I added and subtracted the numbers, could only mean both men and women, as in both males and females. Now, I don't read Icelandic. I don't know any medieval Icelandic. I do know that in Greek or Latin, if you want to describe human beings in a collective plural... Um, you call them men. So if it's a group of women, you call them women. If it's a group of men, you call them men. If it's a group of women and men, you call them men. So I have no idea if that's true of Icelandic as well. Um, But the only way I could get the numbers to add up is if it is. So, uh, So there's 30 people. At this point, where we've got to at the end of part two, we're down to 18. And these don't include named characters. This is the really interesting thing about these numbers. They include both the people who die of the plague and the people who are lost at sea. But it doesn't include Thorod or Thurid or Thorir or Thorgrima. So I think serving folk must mean essentially servants. It's lower classes. And the shepherd, as I mentioned, isn't named in the saga. I named him. Um, So... It seems that basically you only get a name if you're important. Everybody else is a shepherd or a housecarl, which is a servant, serving man, possibly serving woman. Um, And the people who are just sort of numbers are the non-named characters. So the 30 serving folk does not include the named characters who are presumably the elite characters, the, the better off characters. And I think this really detailed attention to numbers is quite interesting. For one thing, it really shows up how disastrous any infection would be in such a small and isolated settlement, whether it's caused by ghosts or not. If you've got some kind of virulent infectious disease running through a small isolated community like this, the effects would be catastrophic potentially. And I think the the saga's attention to the detail of those numbers really reminds us of that. I think possibly it also shows the social attitudes of the writer. So this saga is written a couple of centuries later in the 13th century. So presumably the writer is reflecting their own later medieval society, which is very stratified. So they have these important named characters and then unimportant other than you need enough of them serving people. Whether society was as strictly stratified as that in early settlements where everyone would have to work together very closely is hard to say, but it's not impossible. Um, Certainly the named characters are working alongside uh, the other characters. They're not expecting the unnamed characters to do their dirty work for them. So uh, Thorgunna in part one had been helping with raking up the hay. Um, Thorod goes out uh, with the fishermen. So they are all obviously working together. Um, how stratified their society is, um, is is quite difficult to tell. 
because the writer may be writing from the viewpoint of a slightly more stratified society. Thorod is the landowner, so he is the chief, the landowner, the man running this settlement. Um, with his death, the implication seems to be that this is going to transfer to his wife Thurid and his son Kirtan, particularly Kirtan. So we've got the same themes coming through part two that were through part one, really. One of those is the tension between paganism and Christianity, which I have slightly kind of played up in my version. Um, but the original saga does very specifically mention that uh, there were people who still believed in Ran. And again, apologies if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, the goddess of the sea, the Norse goddess of the sea, that not everybody um, had fully taken on Christian belief and thought. And the saga also mentions that there's no fasting yet for Advent. So around uh, the Christian festival, Advent is the period just before Christmas. It's a time of fasting and abstinence. Then you have the Christmas feast. And then the celebration is the 12 days of Christmas, which are the days between Christmas Day on the 25th of December and Epiphany on the 6th of January. And there's a lot of variations in different countries. In some places give presents on Epiphany and some celebrate St. Nicholas Day, which is the 6th of December. And there's loads and loads of regional variation. But that's the core of the, uh, the Christian festival. You've got Advent, time of fasting, Christmas, feast day, and then 12 days of Christmas, uh, which is the, the celebratory period. Um, and the saga author mentions that uh, there's no fasting for Advent yet. Um, so this story has been very clearly dated to the year that Christianity becomes the official religion in Iceland um, and that it becomes the legal religion and everybody has to be Christian. Um, and the writer shows this really clear awareness that that didn't mean everything changed overnight. So even though this person is writing two centuries later, they still know that people didn't all change their beliefs overnight. They didn't change all their practices overnight. There's this awareness that at the point Christianity became the official religion, there were still people practicing pagan ways and some of the Christian traditions hadn't yet sort of taken root. And of course, the author him, himself or herself, it's probably a him, um, is, is Christian. So Christianity does come to the fore um, later on in the story. But there's not much judgment over the pagan practices, more an awareness that this was something that happened. Um, but as we'll see as the story develops, clearly the author does have this clear standpoint that Christianity is the solution and Christianity is, is what you should be. Um, but without sort of thinking that that would all change overnight. Christianity also brought new burial practices. Um, one of the things that Christians do that a lot of pagan religions, including Greek and Roman religion, found very strange, uh, is burying dead bodies um, near to where the living are. And it's quite interesting that these stories associate ghosts with this idea of infection, the idea that contact with a ghost or revenant might result in you getting sick and dying and of course that reflects on a very practical level the danger of infection from dead bodies a dead body is rotting and is full of goodness knows what beasties eating it um, so dead bodies come with a danger of infection and especially if the person has died of something extremely infectious depending on what type of infectious disease it is so the idea that dead bodies are dangerous 
is one that maybe is reflected in these ghosts that infect other people. But Christianity insists on burying ghosts close to where the living are. So in ancient Greece, in ancient Rome, and in medieval Iceland when it was pagan, bodies would not be buried within the boundary of the village, settlement, town, city, depending where and when you are, whatever size of settlement you're in. Bodies are buried outside. So in ancient Rome, they're buried along the roadsides outside the city walls. In medieval Iceland, they were buried outside of the boundary wall of the settlement. Um, and of course, Scandinavian uh, medieval pagan burials are often in mounds. So it's interesting that these stories of dangerously infectious ghosts are appearing and are being told about the period when Christianity uh, becomes the religion. They may even reflect an anxiety about bringing dead bodies into the settlement, um, that people are suddenly told you must bury the dead right near where you live. And that may bring a lot of anxiety around the idea of what if these bodies might be dangerous to me. And of course, scientifically and entirely realistically, too much contact with a dead body, especially if they've died of an infectious disease, really could be dangerous. So it may be an awareness of that reality that's creeping through in these stories. The pole burials that I describe are mentioned in another saga, another of the Eslindigas saga. Uh, the saga of Eric the Red describes the pole burials, where you put the pole in until you can get a priest to come and say the prayers. And the lack of a priest is really important to this story, so that's why um, I've included that detail as well. And of course, the theme throughout uh, this story that we're looking at across three parts is the nature of the Norse medieval undead sometimes described as draugr. So again, apologies for pronunciation. Uh, so according to William Sayers, uh, the medieval Icelandic undead are either aptragangur, which is a revenant, or a draugr. And there's a lot of um, discussion among scholars about exactly what a draugr is. So this is spelled D-R-A-U-G-R. So Sayers suggests that the shepherd here, the, the one that I've named Bjorn, is a conventional draugr. This is a very physical member of the undead um, who poses a danger to others. However, Armin Jakobsen uh, has pointed out that this word draugr is used only rarely in medieval Icelandic sagas and that the ghosts at Frother are not called draugr. They are called aptragongur, uh, which Jakobsen translates as revenants. And they also use the word reimleichar, haunting. So revenant Generally, we use to mean um, a walking corpse, but without using the word zombie, because zombie calls to mind such a specific vision of a walking corpse. So revenant uh, is often used for a walking corpse that isn't a zombie, uh, but a ghost that continues to inhabit a physical body. Um, Jakobsen also notes the word troll could be used for ghosts and witches as well as ogres. So troll has this broader meaning of sort of monster and again associates ghosts with these quite physical beings. Uh, Jakobsen reckons that there are two main categories of medieval Icelandic ghosts. One is the watchmen of tombs, like the Barrow Whites, which we mentioned uh, last time, and then these more aggressive ghosts who attack the living to make them join them, which uh, he likens to vampires. He suggests they're spectres rather than revenants, and it's really not clear whether these are revenants or zombies, you know, corpses that are walking, 
Or it's possible that they're not literally the corpses of the dead, but just very, very physical ghosts. So we tend to think of a ghost as insubstantial. Uh, certainly Greek and Roman ghosts tend to be insubstantial, though not always. Um, what these might be, rather than literally the corpse rising from the grave, is a ghost, a, a spirit, whatever's left of the dead person, but taking a very physical form and they certainly seem to be stronger and in some cases more dangerous than when they were alive like the shepherd uh, who attacks Thorir and the shepherd certainly has a very strong physical presence on the other hand Thorgunna when she rose from the dead in part one that really does seem to be her corpse so it may be that we should imagine these are literally the corpses uh, and certainly Thorod and his men are dripping water everywhere because they've drowned so there certainly does seem to be some indication that this is the dead body, that it is presumably spirit animating it, dead body walking, a revenant or a zombie. Jakobsen also suggests that the Frother ghosts and another story from Ebigia Saga that we don't have time to go into um, are the best examples of a ghost epidemic with the emphasis on infection. So this story in particular, and this is why I chose it, um, does that theme of the ghosts infecting others. You come into contact with one, and you not only die, but join their ranks, um, comes through really strongly uh, in this particular story. Um, and will continue to do so through part three. So we will chat a bit more about um, infection uh, and sickness in this story um, when we come to part three. So as I mentioned, uh, tons of research for this because it is outside of my specialist area. So just to give you an idea of some of the things that uh, I used in case you want to have a look into it yourself. So the translation of Erbigia Saga is available online as the Saga of the Air Dwellers. It's an 1892 translation into English by William Morris and Eirikio Magnusson from Icelandic Erbigia Saga and it's available online at the Icelandic Saga database. You can also read adapted sections of it in Andrew Joyne's Medieval Ghost Stories. Um, he takes... Uh, a few sections and puts them together with a bit of a commentary. I made a lot of use of the Routledge Research Companion to the Medieval Icelandic Sagas, edited by Arman and Sverio Jakobsen. Uh, I also had a look at William Sayer's chapter from the book Monster Theory, Reading Culture, edited by Geoffrey Jerome Cohen. I accessed that through JSTOR, Journal Storage, the big database of academic journals online. Um, it is also a book, so you could um, access it using the book. Also from JSTOR, uh, and another one that I used for part one as well, is Armin Jakobsen's article, Vampires and Watchmen, Categorising the Medieval Icelandic Undead, from the Journal of English and Germanic Philology, volume 110. And lots of travel websites and blogs describing Iceland in December and describing Viking longhouses, uh, particularly medievalists.net that had some great pictures of turf houses. And I looked at reports on the Skaga Fjörther Church Project on early Christian burial sites in Iceland. So I hope you enjoyed part two of our plague special. Part three will follow at the end of the month as we get back onto our regular monthly schedule. And then we will return to some ancient stories in June. So stay safe, everybody. And you can hear me again in a couple of weeks. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. Music